Hello and greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. It is written in Peter's first letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In verses 17 through 21 of chapter 1. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, In these passages, the whole letter of, of 1 Peter, in fact, uh, is Peter the Apostle writing to Christians in what we today call Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And we see this in verse 1, the elect sojourners and exiles of the dispersion in Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which really is essentially uh, the Turkey today, uh, almost the same boundaries. Now, it's interesting is that when he speaks of exile and dispersion, he's evoking Israel. Israel was to consider itself of the dispersion, the, the diaspora, uh, all the Jews scattered around uh, being in exile is also that theme. But in 1 Peter 2 and verse 10, he affirms that his audience was once not a people, but are now the people of God, going back to Hosea 2 and verse 23. We even saw that in chapter 1, where the idea was that they had been ransomed from the feudal ways of their ancestors, something that it's hard to believe that Peter would say about his fellow Israelites. And so he seems to be appropriating exilic Israel language for Christians. And that's going to prove important as we look at his letter and these passages. It's also worth noting that at the toward the end of the letter, in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13, Peter says that she who is in Babylon gives greeting. And in fact, we'll go on to say that uh, she is elect with you. And so she's he's probably likely referring to the church in this quote-unquote, Babylon. Now, there are some who associate this Babylon with the actual city in Mesopotamia, but it doesn't make a lot of sense, because by the first century, Babylon was a ruined village. It had lost its standing to Setesiphon, which itself would eventually lose its standing to Baghdad, and Babylon was reduced to almost nothing by this time. Others think it's code for Jerusalem. But as we're going to see, the Jerusalem hypothesis is inconsistent with the use of the metaphors involved. 
And that's why most recognize that Babylon is Rome. The city that Simon Peter ends up after journeying from Jerusalem to Antioch through Corinth. We can see evidence of his, tra- tra- his uh, travels in 1 Corinthians 1.12 and Galatians 2.11-14. We also have later patristic evidence in 1 Clement 5 and Tertullian's prescription against the heretics, chapter part 31, and Scorpiake 15 in the apocryphal Acts of Peter, and in Origen's commentary on Genesis 3, uh, according to Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History uh, 3.1. Now, most people believe that Peter is writing this letter sometime in the 60s. And from contextual clues, it seems that Peter is writing to these Christians to encourage them to stand firm in their faith in Jesus despite the trials they're enduring and to keep doing good no matter how well it's going to be received. So let's consider these sections that we have read. And we begin in 1 Peter 1 with the introduction. As we have seen, Peter writes to the elect in Greek, Parapidemois of what we call Asia Minor or Turkey today. Parapidemois refers to either sojourn or exile. It's used here in 1 Peter 1, 1. It's also the word used in 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. Uh, it's also used in Hebrews 11 and verse 13. In Hebrews 11, 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Harpidamois, again. So sojourner, important to keep in mind, is somebody who could return to his homeland, but has chosen a different nation for some reason. An exile is somebody who yearns to return to their homeland, but for whatever reason is compelled to live elsewhere. As Christians, we are to be sojourners relative to our past. Because we are to consider ourselves as having left sin, having left that which we, of which we are now ashamed in Romans 6, 21. Uh, that we are seeking a homeland, a better place in Hebrews 11. Uh, but we are to consider ourselves as exiles relative to this world, lest we become conformed to this world or yearn for something that we've done in the past. I'll see that in Hebrews 13, 13, and 14. So that's why both sojourn and exile have their elements that help us understand how we are to live as Christians. Now they are elect according to the work of the triune God, the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of Jesus' blood in 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. Now this very strongly suggests the Trinity, because all three persons are mentioned, uh, the different roles among the persons of the Trinity. It's important to note that they all work together that we may be saved. So as Peter begins his letter, he's framing it in terms of election, foreknowledge, sanctification, obedience, and atonement, but also in terms of exile. And we're going to need to keep that in mind as we continue. Now later in the chapter, uh, he's establishing in verses 13 through 16 that Christians must be holy because God is holy. And he's continuing that thought verse, beginning verse 17, that we call on God as our Father. We need to recognize He is judging impartially based on our works. And that is why we must spend the time of our paroikios in Greek, in fear or reverence. Uh, par oikios is sojourning or dwelling in a strange land. It's used also in Acts 13.17, where Paul is talking about the Israelite sojourn in Egypt with that term. So Peter is encouraging the Christians to remember that we are to live because we have been redeemed. Not by corruptible things like gold or silver or the traditions of the past, but by the precious blood of Christ. 
that Jesus was foreknown before the world. He was manifest on earth for our sake, and it's through whom, him we have access to God in faith and hope, in, in verses 18 through 21. And so in this part of the letter, Peter encourages holy and righteous living in faith from Christians, and he's talking about their lives in terms of sojourn, a term that also is associated with Israelite time in Egypt. And then we have 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. In earlier, in verses 1 through 10, Peter is speaking of Christians as a temple of God, and he speaks of Christians in terms of the language spoken of Israel. Uh, they were that holy nation, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All of those concepts come from the Old Testament. They're all quotes from various things God said about Israel in the Old Testament. Now Peter's appropriating that for the Christians. And so he then speaks to them as par, par oikus and parapidemus, to encourage them to abstain from the fleshly lusts, to keep their behavior seemly or appropriate among what we call the ethnason in Greek, the nations, also Gentiles frequently in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. We've seen parapidemus in 1 Peter 1, 1, it's the same word again. Paroikus are those who experience a paroikia. We saw the sojourn in 1 Peter 1.17. That's paroikia. The paroikus is the one going through that. Sojourners or strangers. This term is used also in Acts 7, in Acts 7 verse 6 and verse 29 uh, to speak about the Israelite sojourner as sojourners in Egypt and Moses as a sojourner in Midian. And Ephesians 2 and verse 19, Paul uses that term to explain that Gentiles are no longer paroikus to the covenant. They're not longer strangers to the covenant of God in Christ. What's interesting is that he then talks about our, the need to keep our conduct among the Gentiles, the ethnason, to be appropriate. Because as he appropriates the language of Israel to speak of Christians, that means that uh, the antagonists of Israel, the nations, the Gentiles, uh, are now being used to speak about those who would stand against God's people. Now, why does he tell them to do this? Because uh, when, no, it doesn't say if in verse 12, when the, they speak against the Christians as evildoers, the good deeds that the Christians have done will give uh, these the people who are against them reason to glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, it's interesting to note that Peter is not giving any hope or vindication in this life. And even then, he's not saying that the vindication is something that is appreciated on, on, from the other side. And, and In fact, on the judgment day, the Gentiles are going to have to give God the glory because they'll see that the Christians were in the right and they were in the wrong. And they will have to admit that, however begrudgingly. Now, Peter's going to go on in verses 13 through 17 to exhort Christians to be subject to human institutions of authority, to honor everyone, to not use their freedom to cover up evil, but to live as God's douloi in Greek, their slaves or servants. And they will, in doing so, silence the ignorance of the foolish by their good deeds. Now, this is what Peter has written explicitly about exile and sojourn in 1 Peter. So, what are we supposed to make of that? It's interesting that Peter is drawing out these terms that are used elsewhere only in terms of what the experience of Israel was in, in Acts 7 and 13, uh, used by the Hebrew author in Hebrews 11 and 13 uh, for the current experience of Christians, but Peter much more so. And he's framing this letter in, in many ways in terms of sojourn exile. It hit, right at the beginning, the elect exiles of the dispersion. 
uh, in verse 1. The time of your sojourn in verse 17. And as sojourners and exiles in verse, chapter 2 and verse 11. Now it's worth revisiting for a moment that First Peter 5.13. She who is in Babylon, who is elect with you, greet you. Why is Peter speaking of Rome in terms of Babylon? Especially, why is Peter talking about Rome in terms of Babylon in a letter that has been framed in terms of exile? Let's think about that for a second. It's possibly because as Peter has appropriated the language of Israel for Christians, He's also appropriating the image of exile in Babylon. And if that's the case, then 1 Peter, from start to finish, is to be read and can be read in terms of the experience of exile. And when you go through and look at 1 Peter, how this fits in that framework, it really provides an extra dimension of understanding of Peter's purposes. So in 1 Peter 1, 3-9, he's encouraging Christians in the living hope of salvation despite enduring the trials of faith. In chapter in verses 10 through 12, the proclamation of the prophetic message was made for the, our benefit in Christ that we would recognize him. Verses 13 through 16, that we are to set our hope on Jesus to be holy as God is holy. In verses 22 through 25, we've already seen 17 through 21, that we are to love one another, to be born of the incorruptible seed of God's word. In the beginning of chapter 2, we are to put away evil, to yearn for the word of God, to be his temple, or God, uh, God's elect people, and that the Israelite imagery, the terms used of Israel, uh, Peter now uses for Christians. In verses 18 through 25 in chapter 2, the slaves are to serve even masters who are unjust. They are to endure suffering despite doing good, and that's acceptable to God, because that's what Christ has done for us. In the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, wives are to win over husbands with godly living, and husbands are to dwell with their wives in an understanding manner. And the rest of the chapter, Christians are not to return evil for evil, but a blessing. They need to be zealous for good, to make a defense, to suffer for righteousness' sake, and not being troubled by it, to, because Christ experienced this, and he suffered death that we might live. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ in this way, so we do not live any longer in the lust of the flesh, but for the will of God, and that we are to endure the reviling that comes from the Gentiles. And again, he calls them Gentiles. In verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4, he talks about how the end of all things is at hand, and we are to love, to be hospitable, to serve one another with the gifts that God has given us. In verses 12 through 19, that we're not to be surprised at the fiery trial, that we're to rejoice that we can partake in the sufferings of Christ, that we should glorify God to be able to suffer as the name of a Christian, to not suffer as a transgressor, to know that judgment is coming and it's going to begin at the house of God. And thus we do well to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Chapter 5 begins with exhortations to elders and that all should show humility. Verses 6 through 11, to humble ourselves before God, to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us, to resist the devil, to recognize that our brethren on the world are sharing in our sufferings, that God will perfect, strengthen, and establish us. And then at the end of the book, he provides his final salutation. Now, that's a very quick summary of 1 Peter. And it's not for us today to explore uh, the meaning of 1 Peter in, in great depth in all these different passages, although I do encourage you to consider uh, that a whole series of lessons have been preached on 1 Peter that you can find through DeVerboVitae.com. But it's good for us to see that Peter is focusing a lot on the difficulties that Christians experience. And because of that, we can understand this 
emphasis or this frame of exile. Those in the world are not like us. We are not to be like them. And that is why even though we may do good to them, we might suffer for it. But the Christians are elect exiles. God has chosen them. So thus God will sustain them. It's in God's purposes in some way to, uh, for us to experience this exile, to endure the trial, that he may be glorified and honored on the day of visitation. Why? That's, that's been the question the Christians have been wondering ever since. And we can't answer that. And Peter doesn't try to answer that. He instead tells us at the end of chapter 4 to entrust ourselves to God, to our Creator, while doing good. It's for us to trust. It's not necessarily for us to always have explanations given to us. And that's why we do well to consider our time here on earth as exile, in terms of Israel, in Egypt, or in Babylon, and to understand our obligations to one another and to those in the world around us in that light. And that's, in many ways, what Peter's trying to do in chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. He is setting us up for how we can live in the world despite being in exile. Now, there's this temptation with that exile imagery to turn Christians into a fifth column, to be so focused on the kingdom of heaven that we use that to justify either complete withdrawal and or rebelliousness against earthly authority, that we become an island unto ourselves or that we think that we need to overthrow the the powers of the world so as to create an environment in our imagination be more conducive to faith. After all, not a few wars and conflicts have been justified in the name of Christ in this way. And even though no such rebellion may be considered, we can see what happened in Thessalonica in Acts 17 verse 7. And it's something that also could be and would be eventually charged in Asia Minor, that these all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. So that's an, ultimately an accusation that all of us could have to endure, uh, is that we are, are our loyalties are suspect, our, our patriotism is suspect because we affirm Jesus as, as Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then by necessity, the earthly authorities are not as powerful as they would claim to be. After all, Caesar claimed to be the Kurios, or Lord, the Soter, or Savior, and the Theu or the Son of God. So when we say Jesus is those things, then Caesar's claim is questioned. And so rulers always going to have to wonder if the Christians are really with him or are against him. Now, as Christians, we need to understand that our war is, is not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of darkness in Ephesians 6.12, and here, uh, against the fleshly lusts that would consume our soul in 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. Now, why is that our main conflict? Well, because our conduct among Gentiles needs to be righteous and holy. And that means there are charges against us, a slander that they would give. And remember, especially back then, the, the slander was that they were committing incest, that they were eating babies, uh, all kinds of distortions about Christian practice. And that those charges would be seen as folly on, on the final day. And that's why, as exiles, we need to show extra concern to not be of the world, that we need to live according to our profession, and that we ex need to expect that those in the world are going to examine us for inconsistencies, gleefully point them out, will slander us and, and, and charge us unfairly. And they're doing this in many ways to justify themselves. 
And this is why relative to earthly leaders, both here and in Romans 13, we're told to be subject for the Lord's sake, even if that means that we're suffering the punishment of the laws that have been enacted. Civil disobedience is never to be the posture of the Christian. It's important to note that nothing we do as Christians can be justified or should be justified in the name of rebellion. Instead, our behavior is to be marked by faith and obedience to God, no matter the consequences. That is why Peter did not say, we're going to disobey you in Acts 5, verse 29. He said, we must obey God rather than man. His focus is on his obedience, not on disobedience or rebellion. If we suffer the consequence of a law, or proving subject to the institutions of men for the Lord's sake. If we're told either you offer sacrifice to the emperor or you're going to be killed and we respectfully decline to offer sacrifice to the emperor in the name of Jesus and we're killed for it, we have proven subject to that human institution. There's no attempt to avoid the consequence of the of the uh, and, and to somehow try to delegitimize the government. They will be judged for that. But that, that's what Peter's trying to get at. And immediately we say, wait a second, aren't we supposed to be free people? Well, yeah. But as Peter said, our freedom is not freedom in the worldly sense. Our freedom is to be servants of God in Christ. It's not as a cover-up for wickedness. It's not to justify rebelliousness. In the world, the posture of freedom is, I am free to do what I want, and you can't tell me otherwise. That's freedom too. In Christ, we have freedom from, liberation from bondage overcoming sin and death, that we can serve God in righteousness. That's the whole idea of Romans 6, that, that our freedom has been deliverance from being enslaved to sin and death, that we may be enslaved to righteousness in God and Christ. And that's why as exiles we must recognize that we are going to be seen as alien, that our conduct is going to be scrutinized, and that in every way we need to demonstrate our obedience to God, our respect for authority, and that we need to be doing good no matter the consequences. Now that we've seen that for good reason, Peter writes to the Christians of Asia Minor as elect exiles. He's appropriating the imagery of Israel for Christians. That Christians are exiles and sojourners, and Roman and its empire are as Babylon. And it's a very helpful means by which Christians can make sense of their conditions. And there's a lot that we can learn from it as well, because we need to understand that we are exiles. That we live in a Babylon of sorts, but we're not to be of Babylon. We're not supposed to be surprised when we experience trial and we're treated derisively and harshly in the name of Jesus because that's what he experienced. And we're going to be seen as foreigners, as different, as the other, even if we are of the same nation and language and otherwise grew up in the same culture among the same customs. And that's why we must give thought to our holiness and our conduct. That we need to show the proper respect, to live faithfully to God, to give reason, no reason for the Gentiles to blaspheme, to look to the resurrection for our vindication, not from the courts, not from the civil authorities, but in the end from God and Christ. That is where the vindication will come. Because, after all, that's where his vindication came. He was not vindicated on the cross. He was vindicated when God raised him from the dead. He was vindicated when the kingdom was proclaimed, and he was ultimately vindicated when every word that he said upon Jerusalem fell upon it, and that city became a waste, and its temple has never been restored. So we are exiles. We must seek to endure faithfully, no matter what may come upon us. 
So may we endure the trials of exile that we may obtain the resurrection of life. We're again glad that you've spent this time with us. We hope that you've been encouraged by it. Or if you'd like to talk more about uh, the idea of exile in First Peter, uh, if you'd like to learn how to become a Christian, if you just need to talk or if you have a prayer request, any way that, that we can be of service, please contact me on the website, deverbovitae.com. That's D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. Maybe you'd like to learn more about the Venture to Christ. You maybe should learn hearing uh, some more lessons, uh, maybe read some articles. You can find them at VentureToChrist.org or also on many forms of social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.